morning, I want to begin by introducing you to somebody who played a really key role in my life. His name is Willis Savage. This is my dad's dad, my grandfather. Willis was born in 1921 in Oklahoma, and his life began in the middle of the Dust Bowl and the Depression. He told the stories about how he buried brothers and sisters, families and friends who were killed as part of the flu epidemic of the 1920s and the 1930s. After Pearl Harbor, Willis was drafted into the army, and he stood on the English side of the channel as boat after boat after boat of his brothers headed towards Normandy. He spent three years on the European front fighting where he earned a silver star. He was a machine gun turret operator, and he defended his machine gun by himself for 36 straight hours as wave after wave of Nazis came his way. He returned home to the United States and founded a business with his brothers called Savage Brothers Electric in Roswell, New Mexico. He met my grandmother, Helen Savage, and they were married for nearly 70 years. Willis died at the age of 93 in 2014, and I had the privilege of standing at his funeral and speaking. My grandpa was an amazing man, but he was not perfect. And one of his flaws that he passed on to his son, that his son passed on to his son, was stubbornness. And Willis worked well into his 80s and 90s. When he was in his 70s, he was at his church. And my grandpa was the kind of guy, if he came to your house and found something broken, before he left, it would be fixed. So he saw something at church that needed to be fixed. He got up on a ladder. He was repairing something in the roof. And his ladder buckled, and he fell. As he was falling, he did what all of us do. He reached for something to stop him, and he grabbed the top of a door. The only problem was is it was a sheet metal door and he tore all the skin off the inside of his hands. But being the savage that he was, he tore his shirt off, wrapped it around his hands, and finished the job. He went home, and the lawn needed to be mowed, so he mowed the lawn, and it wasn't a small lawn at that, and he sat down at lunch. My grandma brings him his food, and he said, she said, what happened to your hands? Oh, it's nothing, no big deal, just got a scratch on it. And uh, she said, well, let me see this scratch, at which point he unwrapped his hands and she drove him to the emergency room. Three skin grafts later, my grandpa's hands were repaired. He was an amazing, amazing, stubborn, stubborn man. And I've been thinking about him as I got ready for this message today because that phrase that he used with my grandma is one that we have used ourselves. It's fine. It's no big deal. It's nothing to worry about. And hopefully you haven't used that phrase about your filleted hands that are covered in blood, but I believe many of us have used that phrase when it comes to our relationships. We've used that phrase to describe the isolation and loneliness with which we're experiencing. It's fine. I don't have a whole lot of close friends, but it's fine. Nobody really knows what's going on inside of me, but it's no big deal. It's fine. I, I, something happened in my life. I don't know who I would call, but it's fine. I'm, I'm okay. I've got it on my own. I've got it taken care of. And I think that many of us are struggling in isolation and loneliness and ignoring it the way my grandfather ignored, ignored the injuries to his hands. And I want to share with you that this is not just a challenge that you face. This is a challenge that's pervasive in our culture. One in 10 adults recently were surveyed and they stated that they had no close friends. One in 10 adults. 
50% of the adults in that survey responded that they had fewer friends than they did 10 years ago. Stephen Mansfield is a writer and biographer, and he works with organizations that have suffered a leadership crash at the top. And he writes these words. He says, everybody who's in trouble isolates themselves. We hyper-isolate and pull away from those who know us best. Most people who crash have distanced themselves from their best friends. He concludes, we live in a sea of superficial, casual relationships. Some of us don't live in that sea. We're drowning in that sea of superficial and casual relationships. I shared with you last week that Vivek Murthy was the Surgeon General of the United States from 2014 to 2017. And Murthy said that the most prevalent health issue in the country is not cancer or heart disease or obesity. It's isolation. Isolation is the most prevalent health issue in America. Richard Swartz is a Cambridge psychiatrist, and he says that studies show that those who are more socially isolated are actually more likely to die during a given period than their socially connected neighbors, even after you corrected for age, gender, and lifestyle choices, like exercising or eating right. So the first takeaway from this message is make better friends if you want to live. It's more important than eating right. So if you say salad or friend, pick the friend. (laughs) But it's not just the studies and it's not just the, the science. It's actually the consequences of these moments and those relationships and those lack of relationships and those seasons of isolations that hurt us the most. I read also that two Princeton economists, one a recent Nobel Prize winner, were studying national data sets on suicide, happiness, and health. And they concluded that the rising annual death rates among this group, and this group, by the way, is white, middle-aged Americans. Many of you fit that category. Are being driven not by the big killers like heart disease and diabetes. No, they're being driven by an epidemic of suicides and afflictions stemming from substance abuse, alcoholic liver diseases, and overdoses of heroin and prescription opioids. And Gina Colada, who wrote that article, also went on to talk about the correlation between those suicides and substance abuse and the pervasive loneliness and isolation those folks feel. Summary is our big idea this morning. Many of us have never experienced friendship as God intended, so we've settled for less. Many of us have never experienced friendships the way that God intended, and as a result, we've settled for less. We've settled for the fact that we don't have close friends. We've settled for the fact that no one really knows the things that are going on inside of us. We've settled for the fact that most conversations we have with our friends concern politics, sports, and the weather. They don't actually concern what's going on inside of us. And because many of us have never experienced friendship at the level God created us for, we've settled for less. As my grandpa said, it's fine. It's no big deal. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And today I want to challenge you that if you have settled for less, you don't have to keep settling anymore. There are other options. And I want to challenge you to begin hoping again. All throughout this series, we're going to talk about real life friendship issues like these. And we're going to talk about stories from the Bible that speak to these and show us sometimes good models and sometimes not so good models that can teach us. And so today, I want to share with you a different kind of model, and that model comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. 
And it involves two men, a man named David and a man named Jonathan. Their story is recorded in the ninth book of the Bible, the book of 1 Samuel. Now, I recognize the world we live in. It's the world that I speak in every week. And it's a world where you can fact-check me while I'm talking. You can Google the things I say to discover if they're true. Did Richard Swartz really say that? Is there a study that really says that? And one of the things I need to talk about as we begin today is this passage and the conversation around it. Because if you Google the relationship between David and Jonathan, what you're going to find is that some people believe this friendship was more than a friendship. That it wasn't a platonic relationship, it was in fact a sexual one. Now, I've done my homework. That's what my job is to do before I stand in front of you. And I believe that's not actually an accurate and fair interpretation of the text. But I understand why many people have come to that conclusion. And I had to study it for myself because I, along with our church, hold to a traditional view on sexuality and marriage. But as a pastor, I can't let that bias decide what the text says. I have to go and study the text for myself. And as I studied the text this week, a thought came to me as I came to the conclusion that this was actually a friendship and not a sexual relationship. And I think it says something about our culture. I think the reason people look at this friendship and see a sexual relationship is because many of us have never experienced the intimacy that we're about to see in this relationship, even with the people we've had sex with. Because you can have sex with somebody and not be intimate with them when it comes to your soul. And because many of us have never experienced friendship as God intended, we read a passage like this about two men who are close friends and we go, something has to be going on there for them to be that close. And that says more about us and our day and our culture and our struggle than it does theirs. So we had to lay that out but I want to move forward and talk to you about 1 Samuel 18 today. In 1 Samuel 18, it begins and it says, as soon as he, that's David, had finished speaking to Saul, and by the way, I almost forgot, the context of this story is the story you know about David. David and Goliath. David kills the giant in 1 Samuel 17. And so in 1 Samuel 18, as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. We're about to see what that covenant involved here. Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him, And he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set David over the men of war. He was captain over the whole army. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Today I want to show you three features of this friendship that give us a different kind of model than many of us have experienced in our friendships. And the first feature is this. It's self-sacrifice. The friendship between David and Jonathan is marked by what I call profound self-sacrifice. Because Jonathan was next in line to be king. Saul is the king. Jonathan is his son. Saul dies. Jonathan becomes king. But if you know your Bible history, you know that 
Samuel, the priest and prophet who anointed Saul, has been told by God that Saul has forfeited the future of his kingdom because of his compromise and lack of character. And so Samuel has anointed David king. But there's a 20-year period we're in between David at 16 being anointed king and David at 36 being appointed king. There's a sermon there, but I can't preach it today. I don't have time. But Jonathan knows that David has been anointed king. And when he sees David slay the giant and act with the courage that not a single man in Israel had to challenge Goliath, Jonathan sacrifices his place in the lineage of the king. And he says, I'm not going to be the next king, David is. And he takes off all of the outward signs that marked him as Saul's successor, his robe, his bow, his belt, and his sword. And he gives them to David a sign that I'm not going to pursue the kingdom for myself. I'm going to serve you because the future of the kingdom is in you. He didn't have to do that. He could have just killed David and become the king himself. But he didn't. He laid his life down for David. And many of us today struggle in our relationships because we don't live by self-sacrifice. No, we keep score. I bought you lunch last week, so it's your turn to buy me lunch. We invited them to dinner. It's their turn to invite us to dinner. We reached out to them a few times and they never reciprocated, so we're going to go find friends somewhere else. Keeping score is a great way to play games, but it's a terrible way to build friends. And self-sacrifice marks this relationship. One caveat I must make, because I know what some of you are thinking, self-sacrifice can never be demanded. I can't make you sacrifice and it be real. Self-sacrifice can only be given freely. And so if somebody's telling you to sacrifice... That isn't the kind we're talking about today. That's in 1 Samuel 18. If you turn over one chapter more to 1 Samuel 19, we're going to cover our second feature. And by this point, Saul is angry at David and has already tried to kill him because he doesn't want David to take over his kingdom. And in 1 Samuel 19, we read that Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a sacred place and hide yourself. And I, Jonathan, will go out and stand beside my my father Saul in in the field where you are. And I'll speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And so Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, Because David has not sinned against you, and his deeds have brought good to you, King Saul, my father. For he took his life in his hands, David did, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And so Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and he swore, as surely as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. The second quality that marks this friendship between David and Jonathan is loyalty. Loyalty. 
Jonathan doesn't have to do this. His dad told him to kill him. He could have said, okay, I want to be king. I'm going to go kill him. He could have said, David, I'm sorry. I wanted to protect you, but my dad gave the order. He's the king. If I don't care, he can kill me. I got to do it. I'm sorry, bud. Just, you know, family. (laughs) But Jonathan shows incredible loyalty to David. And he sticks his neck out for him. And he puts his life on the line for his friend. Loyalty is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Even if you're on social media, you might see hashtag loyalty. And loyalty means a lot of things. But the one thing I've learned is respect is given, but loyalty is earned. I can respect you for the position you have. I can respect you for the power that you have. I can respect you for the status you have. But loyalty, you earn that through your character. And if you demand my loyalty, it's a sign you're never going to get it. Because loyalty is earned. And David saw something in, Jonathan saw something in David that endeared him and delighted him and bonded him to David because at a moment when no one else would step out and challenge the giant Goliath, not even Saul the king, this adolescent David went after the giant and slew him and saved the people. And Jonathan said, that's the kind of guy I can be loyal to. That's the kind of guy I'll stick my neck out for because he put his life on the line for me. You have people in your life that right now you would take a bullet for. Why? Because of who they are and because of what they've done. Loyalty is earned. Saul had a hard time keeping his promise though. He said he was never going to kill David, but he forgot about that. And so as 19 moves into 20, what we find is that Saul has decided he's going to kill David no matter what. And so David and Jonathan arrange this little agreement about how they're going to figure out if David needs to flee. And so in verse 30, it says, chapter 20, that Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. You can translate that into English. I'm telling you, the Old Testament is fun to study. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. Basically, Saul's saying, you've chosen to submit yourself under David as king. And he's saying, that's to your own shame because you had every right to be king, and it's to the shame to your mother because if you were a true son of your mother and me, you would never do that. So you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, how could you have done this? He goes, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. You think? So Jonathan and David arranged this method about how he's going to let him know that involves firing arrows and a a small boy servant. So Jonathan lets David know, hey, you got to run. He's going to kill you. 
So you skip ahead to verse 41. It says, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And so David rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. David would honor this, that when Jonathan and Saul died in battle, David became the caretaker for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was wounded in that transition. And we see here the third quality between this friendship and its emotional freedom. Emotional freedom. Now again, you have to recognize that their culture is not ours. So if you saw two men weeping and kissing, you might think something was there. But if you've been to a third world country and you've met a man and become friends with him and you're walking along and he grabs your hand and he locks your fingers and you go, oh, okay. I guess we're holding hands and walking. (laughs) You would know that this is not abnormal. It's abnormal for us. But we are not the only culture on earth. I know it's a breakthrough for some of you right now. (laughs) And we are not the only culture in history. And in their culture, for two men to weep and to kiss, it was a sign of close friendship. And they had the emotional freedom to do so. They had the freedom to show up and be who they were as they were. Question for you. I guess I pulled that slide out. Are the friends in your life a place where you can be truthful and transparent? Do you have the freedom to be emotionally yourself with your friends? And if you say, I'm a man, I don't have emotions, you're wrong. You just haven't felt the freedom to engage them. See, they have the freedom to show up as they are, where they are, and be loved and accepted. And that's what I think all of us deeply, deeply long for. As I was reflecting on this passage, I was reminded of a person. Somebody who's familiar to almost all of us, and that's Jesus. Because when I think about Jesus, I think about, well, he, he sacrificed himself for me on the cross. He promised me that he'd never leave me, he'd never forsake me. And he said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. See, every healthy relationship points us to Jesus. All these qualities that David and Jonathan share, they're a line that is pointing us to Jesus. See, the kind of relationship you want to have with people that's healthy and whole is the kind of relationship that God is inviting you into. He's someone who has already sacrificed for you. He's someone who's promised to be loyal to you even when you aren't loyal to him. And he's invited you into a place of complete freedom. The opposite is true as well. That every relationship dysfunction points us back to the fall in the garden where Adam and Eve sinned and then hid from one another. And if there's any habit that most of us have mastered, it's hiding from one another. We show up, we put on a good face, we discuss politics, weather, and sports, 
but we hide the true things that are going on. And therefore, we never connect. And that isn't just a modern problem. That's a problem back in the garden where Adam and Eve sinned and they clothed themselves and they hid from one another. And then God said, where are you? And they said, we, we, we thought we were naked, so we hid. And it's still our problem today. We're afraid of being exposed. And so we hide. And because of that, we remain isolated and lonely and disconnected. So how do you get there? How do you get to the place where those kind of qualities mark your friendship? Well, I have a couple thoughts today, and and really the rest of this series is a journey to help answer this question. But one thing I challenge you to do today is if you're recognizing this is your problem, you need to go in a new direction. You need to change the direction you're going in your relationships. Many of us would say, man, my intent has never been to be lonely. No one sets out and says, you know what? I want to get old and lonely. That's my dream. I hope one day to have no friends. But here's the thing. Having the intent is not enough. In his book, The Principle of the Path, Andy Stanley said, it's our direction, not our intention that determines our destination. It's not enough to have intent. You actually have to be going in that direction. You have to actually have actions that move that intent to reality. In one of the articles I read, a guy named Billy Baker who talked about this, he said, I'm hesitant to say I'm lonely, though I am clearly a textbook case of the silent majority of middle-aged men who won't admit they're starved for friendship, even if all signs point to the contrary. When everything adds up, I have left almost no time for friends. Many of us don't have friends because we've just never prioritized it. Work, family, exercise, hobbies, vacations, we're all more important. We wake up one day and we go, where'd all my friends go? Well, we never actually prioritize that. Number two, you're going to have to have patience. If you are in a place where you're more isolated and lonely than you realized, then you're going to have to be patient with the road out of that. I, I lead a community group here at Cornerstone. We meet in my house on Friday nights. We started about 20 months ago. And uh, we're in a good place now, but when we started, I wasn't sure if people would ever really open up. There were periods where people left on Friday night and I said, why are we doing this? We just all stayed right here. But I had some friends who came over last Friday after we were done. They said, hey, how was your small group? I said, it was amazing. People shared real, raw stuff. And when I think about where they were when we started and where they are now, it's a story of only God. But we had to be patient. We've been meeting every other week for 20 months. The problem is many of us are being discipled by our culture into impatience. And if it doesn't happen in our first time in a group or second time in a group, we're out. If we go to lunch with somebody and we don't really connect the first time, we never ask for another lunch. You have to be patient. And then third, you have to be courageous. At a certain point, you're going to have to take a step that feels uncomfortable. You're going to have to step out and risk. And that risk is going to feel like a big word called vulnerability. A couple weeks ago, we had our friend Matt up on the stage who lost his hands in a tragic car or a climbing accident. And Matt said these words to us. He said, we love it when others are vulnerable with us, but we avoid vulnerability with others. Isn't that so true? Somebody opens up to us and goes, oh my gosh, I, I, I so appreciate you opening up to me. I'm not going to tell you anything about my life, but I love how you opened up to me. And at some point, you're going to have to be courageous. Take that first step 
and invite them forward. And I've got a story I want to tell you about a time where that happened in my life. And I've got my friend Jimmy up forward right now. So you're going to give Jimmy a round of applause real quick. So this is my friend Jimmy Vogt. Jimmy uh, lives in Phoenix. We met probably eight or ten years ago. I think it was probably on a golf course. Probably. Um, and... Uh, About three years ago, in December of 2015, we began kind of a journey together and a new season of friendship. Um, But I'm going to go back to the beginning with you, Jimmy. You told me just recently, like the last couple weeks, kind of about your history with friendships and especially the struggle of them. Yeah, so growing up, I I mean, I played sports, lots of friends, lots of surface-level friends. Uh, But I had one best friend growing up. We met in kindergarten. We're best friends through high school. He ended up moving to the East Coast to go to school. Um, and, of course, back then, technology wasn't what it was today. And it was hard to stay in touch. So we grew apart quite a bit. Um, and I went through a period then where didn't really have any super close friends. Uh, God did bring another man into my life. And we became very close again. Um, and then he moved. Uh, God called him to move his family to another state. And I was kind of back to square one. And you kind of gave up on the idea of having close friends at that point, right? Well, it's, it, well, it, it's hard because when you open yourself up and then you feel as if God takes that away, it's why try? Why try? Yeah. So I called you in December of 2015, I think right after Christmas, mm-hmm. and I was feeling isolated too. I was feeling like I didn't have the kind of close friendships that I want. And so I had this idea and I called you one day and I said, hey, this is going to sound crazy. I think it did sound a little crazy to you. Um, I said, hey, I I want to pray with you every day, five days a week over the phone. And um, would you be willing to do that with me? And uh, it got weirdly silent on your end after that. It did? It did. What were you thinking when I asked you that? Well, initial reaction was, God, no. There's, (laughs) There's no way I'm going to pray with Pastor Scott every morning. This is crazy. It's a ridiculous ask. There's no way. However, very quickly, the Holy Spirit said, Jimmy, remember your wife. If she knows you passed up on this opportunity, she'll probably kill you. (laughs) Uh, So I wisely listened to the Holy Spirit, and against everything that I had in me, I said, sure, let's give this a shot. Okay, so starting in the first of the year, we started doing this. I'd call you or you'd call me, and we would just talk about what was happening in our lives, share a couple of prayer requests, and pray for one another. And in that period, I didn't know this was coming. Um, I got a call from Cornerstone. And I can remember coming over to your house one night. Your your girls were babysitting our kids. And I asked you to step outside, and I go, hey, so I may be moving. And... um, and I had no idea about Jimmy's history until this last week. I had no idea this was there. I just had this sense that we had just gotten started and I didn't want to give up yet. Right. And um, you were crushed that night, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same thing. Again. Like, really? Like, you, really? This is what we're going to do? <laughs> um, it, it just, it, it was the fear, the fear of, like, this not working out again, another friend. You know, somebody who now has become close to me is going to be moving again. It's just, it got a little scary for, for a second. But we hunkered down, and I don't think I've ever told you how meaningful it was to pray with you every day while I was walking this road to figure out if I was supposed to move to Cornerstone. And I genuinely didn't know if we'd be able to make this work, but I was willing to try. Right. And so we've been giving it a shot for the last two and a half years. 
Yeah. Most, most days. Most days. So what is that like for you on your end? I call you sometimes. You call me early in the morning while we're driving. What does that look like for you? It really, I mean, it's, it's been an amazing journey. Um, to be able to pray together, obviously, that has helped me spiritually. It's helped me grow. And, and I knew I'd get that out of this, which was simple. Um, but I think it's gone so much deeper than that. I mean, we'll share leadership ideas and, you know, I, I get to learn how you lead people and it helps me lead people in my job. And it's just, it's been so much more than a spiritual journey that it's, I would have never imagined. And it's just truly been amazing. Well, I can, I can remember there was a moment where, uh, when I first came here, I was battling anxiety Mm -hmm. and I can remember that I was like, okay, you know, Danny said, have you told, have you told Jimmy yet? I was like, no. She goes, wasn't that what you have this for? And I said, well, yeah. Why don't you tell him? Because I'm scared. Um, and, uh, and I can remember sharing that with you, and you didn't reject me. Yeah. And you even shared some things that you'd battled and been mm-hmm. battling. And um, that was a, I think that was a breakthrough day for us. It was. Um, I think, especially as men, you know, opening up about the things we struggle with is truly, truly difficult. Um, but once that door is open, you know, it's just that sense of that weight taken off of you and the pressure is gone and just to be able to spill it to somebody and just have them listen and understand and help you kind of navigate through that is it's truly awesome so there's some people in this room men and women who i've kind of pushed today and they realize they're isolated or lonely as somebody who's been there yourself um not that this fixed all of that you know um but it helped us make progress what would you say to them well, I would say the, the great philosopher B.A. once said, no risk it, no biscuit. And take, Bruce Arians. Bruce Arians, We're yes. Cardinals He's fans, a great so. philosopher. Um, like, take a chance. Uh, if, you, if you don't put yourself out there, if you're not willing to take a chance, you don't know what God has for you. Um, if, if you have that, that friend that you just feel that desire to go deeper with, take a chance. Uh, they need it just as much as you need it. And the, allowing God to work through that, through the both of you, I mean, it can be life-changing. Well, I want to say thank you. You have showed up in my life again and again. Even this week, I texted you and said, hey, I need peace on a big decision. Will you pray for me? Um, and all you had to do was, yep, I got you. And um, I just appreciate you being with me. Um, there's not a lot of people that um, I can share the weight of what I carry with, but you've been a great friend to walk with. And in front of all my friends, I want to yeah. say thanks for being my friend. It's been a good journey. Awesome, man. Thanks. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, man. I also want to say thank you to Jimmy because he hates being on stages. And so um, that was uh, nerve wracking for him all week. Um, Before we go today, I want to share with you a couple of next steps that may speak to you about where you are and what's next for you. The first one is this. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is my current level of loneliness and isolation? What is my current level of isolation and loneliness? And be honest Here's the challenge I think many of us face, because that's what I faced when I asked myself this question this week. Most of us, our tendency is to back up and look at the people around us for what they haven't done for us. Our tendency is to look out the window and blame everybody else. And what I want to challenge you to do is don't look out the window, look in the mirror. You can only control you. And so ask yourself, if I had 
a piece of really good news to share, who would I call? If I was headed for the hospital, who would the person be that I called or texted on the way? While at a stoplight. (laughs) Who are the people that if I was in the ICU, I would put on that short list that they're the people who are let in? And if you don't know who goes on that list, then I think that answers the question of how isolated and lonely you are. Number two, you should ask yourself, what is one thing I could do today? This isn't like, how could I solve this for my whole life? Or what could I do over the next month? But what is one thing you could do today? Who is somebody that you could text right now while I'm talking and say, could you have lunch this week? Could you pull that card out that Clovis showed you earlier and sign up for a community group? Who's the person you could grab before the service is over and say, hey, can you talk to me about this? I really feel like that you're the person I want to go deeper with or I need some help with this. But so many times we get, we get really good vibes in here on Sunday morning and then we wait till Monday or Tuesday to apply it and we forget. And I challenge you to do something today, maybe even before this service is over. And then number three, I want to challenge you to keep showing up. Some of you are new to Prescott or relatively new to Prescott. And you move somewhere that you used to live for 20 or 30 years. I moved to Prescott after living for almost 15 years in Phoenix. And a promise I made myself really early on while I was struggling is this. I'm not going to compare my friendships here to my friendships I had there. Because that's unfair. But I am going to keep showing up with my friendships here because one day they could be like the friendships I have there if I was patient. Some of you... It's just a matter of patience and waiting it out. It's a matter of continuing to show up. In the beginning with Jimmy, those phone calls were real awkward. But three years later, they're one of my favorite parts of my day. And if you're in a place where you're isolated and lonely, I want you to know that today there is hope and you can get there if you keep showing up. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.